not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. Hello and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety in 2011. I tell my stories there, and I invite you to share your stories here. Well, I hope you're doing well. I'm getting through this time uh, as I record this. It is April the 6th. And we are um, several weeks, almost a month now, into our confinement at my house. Uh, my husband and I and our dog are in our house and uh, not going anywhere, not having people in and not going out except for a daily walk. And uh, every 10 days or so, I go to the grocery store. Quite excited today's grocery day. So quite excited to go get groceries. This is the highlight of my week, although it's also stressful in its own way. But overall, we're doing well. Our small business has been affected, so there's there's some strain there, but we're going to be okay. And I'm really leaning hard on creativity to pass the time. So every day I get outside if I can, I do something creative, and I try and eat well and go to bed not too late. And that's really just working for me. I have written so much, you guys. I've actually worn out three or four or maybe more pencils. I use old-fashioned pencils that you put in a pencil sharpener and sharpen. I have gone through so many of them. I now have a collection of pencil nubs, which is sort of my scorecard for how much I've been writing. I write morning pages by hand. I've also been writing a lot of poetry, which might sound a little odd because I'm not really known for poetry, but of course, many of you know I used to be a songwriter. Uh, the opening music to this show is from an album that I released in 2008 called Blessings and Burdens, and yes, it's on your music streaming app. I'd say that's a plug for me, but honestly, I do not make any money for for that music. <laughs> a recording artists will tell you that music streaming does not result in money, so it's not really a plug to tell you that. Anyway, I'm writing so much poetry right now. I'm actually thinking that I, I probably have enough for a poetry collection that's all about recovery. So I may, I may put that together. That may be something that comes out of this time. So for me, it's a quiet time and, it, and it's a sad time. I miss my family, but uh, there's a lot of things happening within this period as well. So today's guest, this is a really powerful discussion today. Barry will share how her core attachment wounds replayed themselves out repeatedly in various relationships and how that trauma affected her addiction and her training as a licensed clinical social worker gives her incredible insights on reflection. So you'll hear how after years of recovery, a relapse that lasted a total of 52 minutes had extreme and dire consequences for Barry and her son and how she subsequently moved through the fallout of that terrible situation and used it to strengthen her recovery in the long run. This is my discussion with my friend, Barry. Hi, Barry. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Jean. Thank you so much for um, inviting me to speak on the Bubble Hour. I really appreciate it. I'm really grateful to spend time with you today and get to know your story and share your story with our listeners because I have 
met you, I think twice we were able to spend a few days together and you've always intrigued me. And so I'm really excited to spend some time with you again and learn even more about you. Well, thank you. I'm excited um, to spend time with you. I always had so much fun with you, especially um, when I met you at Kripalu and then at She Recovers in Mexico, doing your tarot cards, which I didn't even know what I was doing, but you you were great at interpreting those. So yes, um, yeah, I, I have always had fun with you. I've always appreciated your take on things because you have spent a lot of time learning about things. You're you're an expert, as we'll learn, about a lot of things, and, and you're willing to look at your own life with very clear eyes, and I find that fascinating. So anyway, I don't want to give away okay. any of your stories, so let's jump in. Let's get to know you, Barry. Tell us about yourself and tell us your story. Okay, so um, my name is Barry. I am a 57-year-old Pisces uh, living in rural Virginia. I live on 25 acres uh, it's just beautiful where I live. Um, I moved here after living in Washington, D.C. for 18 years. Um, I love hiking. I, I love the horseback riding out here and the fresh air and lots of yard work. And so before I go on, also, I just want to let you know that the story, um, most of the story that I'm telling you is all hindsight. And there's even hindsight from this morning. And I'm just going to be totally honest and authentic, and I'm not going to try to manage other people's perceptions. I'm just going to be, just tell it, you know, as the best that I can. So, yeah, so I live in Virginia. Um, I am recovering from, I started my recovery journey, wow, like back in 1989 um, for alcohol. And so that's what got me into recovery. Oh, I was widowed um, in 2006 when my child was eight months old. So um, I was a uh, 43 years old at the time. So I'm also a boomer. Um, throw that in there. You know, I'm not really big at using labels, but for the sake of telling my story, I will be using labels, you know, like widow and, you know, um, other things like that. So... So anyway, well, my story starts. Um, I was born in Nashville, Tennessee on March 12th, 1963. I was given up um, at the moment of my birth. Uh, my birth mother um, had to give me up for adoption. And so at that moment of my birth, I experienced what is called relinquishment trauma. And um, I was told later by my biological mother that you know, after she had given birth to me that she had tried to jump out of the window at the hospital. So I can only imagine how, what a traumatic situation that was for, for her. And for me, I was put into foster care for six weeks. And then I was eventually adopted by a family going through a divorce. And um, when I look back at the dates, I, you know, I, I, was, I was at my new home for about a month. And um, my caregiver, she left for Australia to visit her sister, my Aunt Barry, um, whose husband was the ambassador to Australia, um, Uncle Bill. And so I looked back at that time thinking, well, if I came, if I was born in March and I came into the home in May, 
and then the lady who adopted me was away for two months in Australia. Like, who took care of me? I, I was told I was I was uh, raised by a nurse. So early on in life, you know, I, I'm not attaching. Um, I'm not bonding with um, one person or one caregiver. Um, I'm receiving really little love, and um, I'm not developing a sense of trust. Um, I know for, for infants, you know, that if they are nurtured, if they are fed when they're supposed to be fed and their diapers are changed when they're supposed to be changed and that they are bonding and attaching, that they develop trust. And so as a baby and early on in life, I really just never um, developed. I had a very, uh, very distrustful of adults and very distrustful of people. So that was, that was kind of what set me up for life. And then when I was cleaning out my attic, the other day, um, I found a, a report card that was um, when I was four years old, and I was reading through it, and it, it kind of like it's a scientific proof almost. It's like written proof that I didn't have trust. I, I showed fear of authority. This is at four years old. The threat of punishment is often the only approach that works with her. Um, Barry wants and needs friends. She tries hard, but usually manages to antagonize her playmates. They will listen to her and follow her at first, soon learn that she has led them into something that will result in criticism and correction. It seems that she is deliberately trying to get the other children into trouble. She is very apprehensive of adults' attitudes in any situation. I, I was aggressive. I showed need of affection. I needed reassurance. And it says here in the teacher's notes, Barry shows a definite need of affection. She needs to be guided in a way to seek attention in a positive rather than negative way. It says that I'm very distrustful of adults. Like I was very musical, you know, and, uh, and I was a smart little kid. So, you know, that kind of makes me sad when I look back at that, that I just, um, I think that just kind of set me up for um, addiction because of the trauma. Well, that's, that's hard to talk about. Mm. Whew. Um, yeah, so I grew up and I was told in my um, adoptive family, I was told how lucky I was that I'd been adopted by such a wonderful family. And because the, the my parent, the family had gotten divorced, I, I've never in my entire life lived with a father figure. I had, I've never had a relationship with a father except for, you know, seeing him at Easter or Christmas or out on the golf course, you know while he's passing by. Um, so I never had that modeled for me. So you can, I can kind of see where this is going as far as setting me up for healthy relationships. <laughs> so yeah, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. It was a affluent kind of old South section of Nashville. Like I said, I was um, always reminded how lucky I was to had been adopted by such a wonderful family. Help me out here, Jean. Um, <laughs> well, first of all, before you move forward, I just, I am just loving that little girl of you, that little Barry and that report card. I just want to give her a hug. And oh, I'm hearing that that teacher was actually pretty perceptive and intuitive, and yet they didn't know what to do with you at the time. I feel like today you would have been helped differently than you were at that time. What did adolescence look like for you as you got older then? And what was the attitude towards alcohol in your home as you grew up? 
adolescent. So where I grew up in the in the South, cocktails were every day. I mean, at five o'clock, everyone had cocktails. If I went to my grandparents' house every day at five o'clock, not four fifty nine and not five oh one. At five o'clock, they went and started cocktails, and it was usually um, bourbon. In my adoptive family on my paternal side, uh, George Dickel was a prominent family member, and I, uh, George Dickel is a whiskey. I think it's, uh, we actually owned it for 34 years during Prohibition, actually, and um, it was a big competitor with Jack Daniels, I believe. So, so you know, being in the Old South, um, you know, there was always cocktails. And so as a teenager, I remember spending the night at a, I had a, at a slumber party. I was 12 years old, and uh, we mixed orange juice and vodka, and I drank it out of a straw, got on a bicycle, and pedaled down the road singing, you know, Cool in the Gang song or something <laughs> like that. It was a lot of fun, you know. I think it was like, shake, 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 shake your booty, you know, um, <laughs> so that tells you how old I am. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so I discovered alcohol, but I really also, um, I smoked a lot of weed and I lived in this little, this great neighborhood where we always rode our bicycles or skateboards and we always went to people's houses and parents had no idea what we were doing. And we had forts and tree houses and, you know, um, dirt bikes and I was I was kind of a tomboy and I, I hung out with like kind of the rough guys you know and um, so you know we were smoking marijuana and um, sneaking alcohol from time to time I was a really good student though I, I was um, I studied hard and I was very athletic I played basketball and um, tennis and soccer I was MVP in soccer I was I was at one time when I was 13, I was the only girl on a all boys um, soccer team. So I'm always athletic. And, and even in high school, um, I smoked weed a lot, like before school. And then I would go to school and then, you know, I still made straight A's. And, but I was, I was having kind of an identity crisis because when I was in high school, it was, you were either a freak or you were a jock. So I was kind of hiding myself because um, I was all, very athletic um, and I didn't want the people who I was doing the athletics with to know that I smoked weed. And then I didn't know where I belonged. I mean, that's kind of the ongoing theme of my life from the time that I was born. Like, where do I belong? I don't belong with my, my biological mother and I don't really belong with this adoptive family. And I, you know, and I've had so much carrying so much shame and my adoptive father doesn't love me. And my mother, you know, really I had to, um, I mean, if we're going to use labels, she was a, a narcissistic and um, very narcissistic. So I had to um, repress everything inside of myself in order to make her happy. Or, you know, I had to have some type of persona, even as a, as a teenager, to be like this, what she wanted me to be. Um, we had, in high school, we had sororities. Um, I was not into sororities, and that really upset her. I was more into skateboarding and not going out to the Crystal Burger place and hanging out in cars and talking to boys in Jeeps. So I got through my teenage years. I got a scholarship into college. I went to an all-women's liberal arts college in Virginia. So I moved from Nashville to Virginia the first day of my freshman year, um, the lady that raised me, my 
caregiver just had kind of dropped me out in front of the college and was that, that's it. You know, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Um, don't come home for Thanksgiving and find some place to go for Christmas. About a month into college, I, um, I did my first shot of Jack Daniels. I did my first shots of whiskey and ended up in the intensive care unit. So that was in 1981. Um, and that was the first time I was told to go to an AA meeting. So that was a long time ago. Um, anyway, so I got through the four years of college and there was some, you know, there was a lot of drinking and uh, we used to drive up to this um, college. It was an all male college called Washington and Lee University. And we would go up to the fraternity parties and listen to bands. And it was a lot of fun. And I got through college and then I moved to Washington, D.C. in 1985. And I got a job at a brokerage house. And um, I didn't realize at the time, but that was a very uh, big kind of a drinking profession where, you know, after the stock market closes, you know, everybody went to happy hour. And um, my days in Washington were, you know, I did, I did do a lot of drinking. I was just numbing out and I wasn't happy. And, and, but, you know, I'd been taught to present that I was happy and wear this mask. And uh, I did have a lot of friends and, and I had a really nice crowd of folks that I knew from college, and we were all, like, as a group, happy group there in Washington. You know, in 1981, you were pretty young when you were had that incident with alcohol that led someone to suggest going to an AA meeting, but I'm guessing that that didn't really land with you. At what point did you start to realize that something wasn't right with your relationship with alcohol and drugs, or did you always know that on some level? Well, in 1989, I'd lived in Washington, D.C. for four years. Um, I started going to, um, I went into a couple of AA meetings. Um, I was hanging out with a crowd. We were um, snorting cocaine. And um, I just noticed that a lot of people, I was the people pleaser, of course. And, and so people were coming and hanging out at my apartment. And, you know, the sun would come up and I'd think, oh, my gosh, I've got an hour before I have to get to work and there'd be all these people at my house, you know. And um, I realized that I really needed to do something. Um, so I checked myself into Hazleton up in Minnesota for 30 days in 1990 just to kind of get away um, and start all over. And um, that was great. Um so from 1990 to 94, I stayed sober. And 1993, I got married to a, a man that I met in a 12, the 12-step program. And that didn't last for about a year. Wow, 1998 to 2003, I was sober. 2001, I got married to, again, to a man that I met in a 12-step program. So what I'm doing here basically is um, unconsciously, you know, I was raised by a woman who, you know, who was, um, narcissistic. And so I am unconsciously at that time picking out, um, partners and husbands who have the same qualities that my mother had. Did that feel so, like love? Is that what love? Oh you yeah. Understand? Yeah. Love, that was why. love because that, yeah, that was the way I was raised then. So that was love. Your days at Hazelden, those those 30 days you spent there, can you talk a little bit about that experience? And did you have any light bulb moments during that time? I did have a lot of light bulb moments, but I, I'm a smart lady. So I was able to read everything that they'd given to me and, and ha rehash it, you know, hash it back to everybody else and memorize the 12 steps. And, um, you know, I knew how to do talk the talk and um 
I guess the hardest part was, you know, when they had the family session and my brother, my older brother, who was also adopted, he, he delivered me to Hazelden. You know, he'd had an eight ball of cocaine in his pocket um, on the airplane. So it was like when the family shows up for family session to tell me, you know, all the things that were wrong with me. Um, I just found it kind of hypocritical. And the, and the fiancé who was with, who came up for family session, he was the one spending the money, spending my money on the cocaine and the, the parties was also there, you know, to tell me how much he cared about me and, you know, that I needed to quit doing all this, all these destructive things. Um, but I did learn. I mean, I learned that I can get a, you know, I did. I learned the basics. I learned that I could take care of myself. I guess I learned how to survive addiction, basically. Oh, talk more about what that means to you, how to survive addiction. Do you mean that you learned how to come through addiction or that you were learning ways to continue coping with it as a factor in your life? So I went there with every intention of, you know, staying sober. I was able to stay sober for about four years after that experience. As you look back on that period of sobriety, would you say that you were just staying dry because you had so much dysfunction around you, which are really, it's ongoing trauma, all of those negative relationships and, as you said, hypocrisy and and ongoing drug and alcohol use in the people around you. So do, were you able to actually access any healing or changed behavior or were you just staying dry? Well, from after Hazleton for the next four years, I was sober. I would go to, you know, one, two, three 12-step meetings a day. You know, I got very involved. Um, I changed my people, places, and things. I married my first husband, who was in the rooms. He was about 20 years older than I was. <laughs> but, um, and so, yeah, so I think, yeah, I mean, I really, I created a foundation with Hazelden. You know, I could just say 1998 to 2003, I was sober. 2004 to 2006, I was sober and depressed. 2006, uh, I was my husband. My third husband commits suicide. I was discarded. Uh, 2007 to 2012, I was sober for five years. 2013, I got a DWI. 2014, I broke my neck. I was sober but was taking pain pills. 2015, I checked myself into another rehab, um, a holistic rehab. It, it didn't treat trauma, and so I just kept getting worse because I don't think I was treating any of the trauma. I knew by 2015 that, you know, there's got to be a reason why that I can stay sober for a certain amount of time, and what is it that that is so creates so much pain inside of me? I started reading Brene Brown, and I, I started letting go of shame, and I started to question, you know, modalities that I'd been using just one, one modality in particular, just for recovery and realizing that, that I can empower myself and that I am a person of worth. The incident that really kind of catapulted me, you know, I had this huge, huge bottom. Um, in, you know, 2018, I remember talking to you about it, but I, I had been, um, you know, sober for a couple of years and I had a, a sponsor who I'd known for 20 years. And 
I was so excited because around 2018 in April, I discovered um, Recovery Elevator and I, I had discovered podcasts and I had been doing uh, practicing my yoga practice. I've been doing that religiously for, you know, a couple of years. And um, and I was I was listening to the bubble hour and I was listening, you know, to all these podcasts. And I then I found She Recovers online and 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 all of a sudden, you know, everything seemed to have hope. I mean, I, you know, I found hope for the first time and I, and I started getting involved and I started re- reading about, you know, refuge recovery and 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 um, and and starting to just really let go of a lot of shame that I've carried all my life about not belonging. I just feel like we're all energetic beings and. My energy was just, um, I was feeling really heavy just by going to one type of recovery. And so when I, in 2018, just a few years ago, when I discovered all of these other things out there online and, you know, Instagram accounts and about recovery, I just started to feel lighter and just like there was really some hope for me. And so you know, I call. I was talking to my sponsor, and I was explaining to her like about all these wonderful new modalities that I found, and that, and you know, to let her know that, you know, the reason I hadn't been to you know five meetings that week was because you know I had actually spent you know gone to an extra yoga class, or I I uh, you know was on an online meeting on Recovery Elevator, or you know, and she fired me. She just fired me. And, you know, looking back on that in hindsight, I was, I was okay with it. I, I got, I understood it. I, I guess I pretended like it didn't hurt, but then I was driving my son to camp and he goes to a a month long sailing camp down in North Carolina. And I got down there and we, we, we were at the Airbnb and walking distance to this restaurant. And I, I don't know what overcame me, but we got to the restaurant and um, I got up to go to the ladies room and snuck a couple of shots in at the bar. And the next thing you know, within like 45 minutes, you know, the police are involved and um, I'm getting arrested and uh, uh, my son is taken to his camp. So he's safely put into his camp and I'm thrown into jail and North Carolina. And, um, that changed, that changed everything for me, Jean, um, because you know what happened as a result of that relapse that started at 638 at night. And I was in handcuffs. I think I said, by, I think by 720, less than an hour, I was in handcuffs and, um, and child protective services got involved and I lost custody of my child for, almost a year, a little over a year, 13 months. So, um, yeah. This part of your story um, brings me to my knees every time. I mean, I'm close to tears listening to you talk about it. And, um, and I know, I know this story. We're all, we're all a breath away from this moment and how fast it unraveled for you and how hard the next year was for you to endure until your son was able to come home again. I know it it will, if if anybody's listening to this and they have been through it, um, I know that it, it, it's helpful. You know, I came back from North Carolina thinking that my son was still at camp. It was a one month long sailing camp. I mean, it's, 
he was, it's a Christian camp. It's a YMCA camp. He was in a safe, safe place. And Child Protective Services had a month in order to find a good home for him or something. Talking about hindsight, so I came back and I talked to our family therapist, and he, he said, Barry, I don't understand. I mean, everything was going great. I mean, what happened? Why did you lose it? I mean, why did you drink? I don't, you know, and I, I explained to him a few things, and he goes, it's exactly like you were raised by your mother. You, you were raised with no, no unconditional love, that everything was conditional with her, and when your sponsor fired you, a week before your son's camp started, it was just like your mom, you know, saying, hey, if you don't do it my way, if you don't do what I want you to do, then I'm not going to love you. And I, I have to think that that, I kind of feel like that was probably what was going on. And so I just vowed from that day forward that I was not going to be in a recovery situation where everything was going to be conditional and, and for me to be loved. So yeah, my son, they put him into a, uh, um, a group home in Richmond, Virginia. It was for troubled youth. It was very traumatic energy. I was not allowed to talk to him or see him for four months. You know, I had to go into court. I had to hire a lawyer. I spent over $10,000 on an attorney. Um, I had to go in and listen, go and sit in these meetings and hear what a horrible, neglectful and abusive mother I was. Court ordered into AA. I had to get slips signed. You know, that wasn't a problem, but because I'd been to, you know, over probably 8,000 AA meetings at by that time um, or more. It wasn't your son saying yeah. you were an abusive mother. It was the system interpreting your situation that way. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, what was so difficult for him was he had done nothing wrong, and he was being put in these places, like, you know, group homes and a couple foster families where he wasn't treated well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he's an honor roll student, you know, uh, he's a great kid. He didn't understand. He thought he felt he was being punished. So, I mean, we have been healing that whole time that he was in foster care. I took advantage of that time and I went um, on the She Recovers Kripalu retreat. And then I spent the week in Mexico and went on that retreat. And then um, in January of 2019, I went to a life advancement center and spent a week there getting just some powerful healing. Yeah, 2018 pretty much broke me and my family. Having encountered yeah. you and met you during this time, my impression of it was that you were doing everything you could to pass the time while your son was away from you and heal during that time and use as many tools as you could get your hands on to show you were healing and working hard on yourself and your situation. And unfortunately, it wasn't always appreciated by the authorities, was it? Good point, Jean. Um, Yes, you're exactly right. You know, the court orders you to go to um, AA, and you're required to go to AA only. They didn't count, you know, going on a retreat as recovery. You know, it, it's just the court system. It, it's nothing I can do about it. It's it's just a paradigm here. The online meetings didn't count. Going and having um, Reiki didn't count to move negative dense energy out. 
you know, the only thing that counted, the court wanted to see was a slip sign in an AA meeting, and that was it. And, of course, I was doing that. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, but I, I wanted them to see that I was going far beyond just the 12-step meetings, that I was doing everything that I could, you know, to heal myself. And so, yes, I went to Costa Rica, and, yes, I did a week at a life advancement center with um, – um, medicine, a modality that I definitely don't think the court would approve. But I know that in that one week um, of that retreat, that my entire nervous system, limbic system was rewired. I got more healing in that 14 months than I did in 30 years of doing like talk therapy and, you know, cognitive therapy and everything. It just, it, it, it was amazing that I, I, I did these, this modality of, of healing that's not looked upon positively, I think. And, um, but it worked for me and, um, I am so grateful. I feel so humbled in my son. I am able to help him heal. It's just amazing that, that we are healing together and, and gosh, um, you know, we look back on the year that he was not with me. I, luckily, he was in a in a foster family close by for the last five months of his, the time that he was away from me, and they were able to drive him to his school, and I got to visit with him on like one day a week or something. And then it was, you know, it turned out to weekend visits, and then he was home in in August this past August. So it hasn't been that long. So, ah, what was the moment like when he came home? It was awkward um, because um, it just was, it was a little awkward, you know, that, you know, I felt, I, I remember, I feel, feel like I had constantly had to prove myself. And I know that he, he needed to learn how to trust me again. And I was very patient with that process. And it, and it, you know, um, it, you know, a child needs consistency and a child needs to be able to trust the parent. I mean, that's the whole thing that I grew up with, everything you know, I grew up as a distrustful. I mean, I just, you know, I was, I was repeating patterns, you know, with my son, even though in my brain, I, uh, my whole life, I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a therapist and I'm not going to repeat the patterns that I had, you know, in my family growing up with my child. And, you know, there were, even if they were unconsciously transmitted to him, um, there was um, trauma transmitted to my son, and um, so you know we're healing. And he has a he has a mom who's 100% here for him. I mean that's that's my goal. Is gosh, I mean with everything going on in this world, you know I want him to feel secure in his home. You know that when he leaves his home every day, well not now because of quarantine, but you know. He has a safe place to come home to at the end of the day, and that he has a parent that he can count on, and he's consistent, and who he feels comfortable with, you know. And I just see I see him blossoming, and but I do dialogue about you know what happened and when he was at foster care, and when he was away from home, and I I take one hundred percent responsibility. I take full accountability for that entire episode. I don't react as much, you know, I just, I just let him be him. I let him let, you know, the expression, you do, you boo. Well, you know, I let him do him. And um, that's kind of where we are right now. So I'm just very, 
grateful that the last 14 months or so of my healing have been profound and that I'm able to share that with my son. As I reparent myself, I'm relearning, you know, how to, you know, get my own needs met as an adult. You know, I can see, he can see me, he sees me reparenting myself and he sees how I'm healing and I'm modeling this behavior for him. You've broken the cycle. You've changed, you've changed the pattern. You've disrupted the cycle and reset the course, right? Right. You know, Barry, if I was going to make a movie about a single mother who went through what you and your son went through, the happy ending would be the moment when the boy walked through the door to come home again and they embraced and the angel sang and the clouds parted. Everything was happily ever after. <laughs> so it's interesting to have to say that that might have been the end of one story, but it was the beginning of another story. And um, I find that really interesting. I mean, I didn't, I didn't expect that answer from you. That's a bit of an eye opener and a reminder that we're never done with this. This is an, this is an ongoing work in progress. You mentioned in passing uh, that you're a therapist. So explain to us when your career took that turn and how that's unfolded for you since. Well, in 2001, I went, um, I got a master's in social work. I was living in D.C. You know, I was also in recovery and I was um, sober at the time and I wanted to help everybody. And um, so I uh, recently in June, I retired my credentials, my licensing, my licensed clinical social worker. It's like instead of labeling human beings as disordered, you know, why why don't we look at like ancestral traumas? Why don't we look at lifestyle? Why don't we look at societal conditioning? I just found it so hard. It's like we're not treating mental illness. We're treating trauma. We're treating trauma responses and coping mechanisms and subconscious programming. And I kind of feel like mental, you know, when we hear that mental illness runs in the family, I, you know, would like to just cross that out and say trauma runs in our family. So I'm just, right. I'm all mm-hmm. about the trauma because, you know, for three decades of, of, of you know, reco- trying, recovering from addiction to alcohol, you know, I wasn't looking at the trauma. I wasn't really, I was talking about the trauma, but I was actually, to be honest, I was too ashamed to talk about the trauma. I mean, I had been conditioned, you know, that you're a lucky girl. You got adopted by a wonderful family. And um, you should be so lucky. And if it wasn't for your mother, you would be working at a McDonald's. Betrayal trauma by a narcissist, is it's real. And 40 years of that, uh, the lady that raised me, who adopted me, she's still living in the house I grew up in, in Nashville. She's, she's going to be 92 in August. And I haven't um, talked to her or seen her since 2006. I knew once my son was born, he was a little baby at the time. And my uh, my husband had uh, disappeared, and a suicide note had been found in his car. And then I went to the beach with my family and was told not to talk about it. Um, and you know, everything kind of exploded. And I realized at that time, when my child was eight months old, that I I really can't have my child around this. I've done it for forty three years. Mm-hmm. I can't do it anymore. But I, I let her discard me. You know, it, it just, it was the way that it was supposed to happen. My whole life I'd been discarded and manipulated and gaslighted and, you know, um, all of the things that go with, you know, um, 
a narcissist. And there's a wonderful little Facebook uh, blog. It's called Narcissism and Adoption. And, you know, I didn't know, like, there's a real thing, narcissism and adoption. I know that when adoption started, it was because children really needed homes. And I think when I was adopted, it was because parents really needed children. Um, Mm. I was the girl... I was the girl, and they needed a boy and a girl. So, and there are some wonderful books out there. There was one book that I, uh, the first book I read that uh, in 1979, it's called The Drama of the Gifted Child. It's by Alice Miller, and it was profound. It's a, it's a, Alice Miller writes about the sensitive child at early age um, is always adapting to the needs of the parents. Um, and the child learns to repress um, everything, uh, anything that's unacceptable to the parent. And when I read that book, um, it came out in 1979. I don't think I read it until about 95. That was kind of when things started um, opening my eyes. The scales <laughs> had been lifted from my eyes or whatever the expression is. You know, it's like, Wow. I so I'm no longer the licensed clinical social worker because I really don't believe in labeling people with any type of mental illness. Um, I think everything is trauma based. Um, that's just my my stick stick on it. Um, <laughs> I I just I you know I really love Gabor Mate. Um, I I love what he says about addiction and trauma. And if I can remember it correctly, it's um, not everyone with trauma has an addiction, but everyone with an addiction has had trauma. And I, I, that really sticks with me, too. So now I am a self-healer, and I am shining, and I am excited about my life. You know, I am at peace. I have released so much trauma. I mean, physically released and continue to do so daily through movement and integration and breathing, everything. So I'm, I'm in, I'm going to stay like this probably for the rest of my life. I'm healthy. I haven't even had a cold or anything since January, 2019. I eat healthy. My gut is healthy. I'm a happy camper. And, you know, my whole entire life with, uh, the person that raised me was it was sabotage. I wasn't allowed to be happy. And I used to apologize about being happy. But guess what? Now I am shining and I will not make apologies. And uh, my energy is light and um, I'm vibrating at a high frequency, baby. And um, <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> so I'm just really excited. Um, you know, I've, I've been through I've been through it. I have, mm-hmm. you know, I've been through it. You know, I, I think I told you there was a, after my son was taken away, I spent a month on the, on the couch in the middle of the summer. And I, I wasn't being selfish. I wasn't being self-centered. You know, I just, I was so traumatized and I was in that frozen state. Um, I was hungry and there was a yogurt in the refrigerator and it took me three days to get off that couch to get that yogurt out of the refrigerator. I mean, that's how traumatized. And I'm sure my son was traumatized. You know, I'm talking about me right now, but, you know, if we want to do a, a podcast about my son, I'd, I'd have a lot more to say about him. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and how much I love him and, and how important he is. And, 
and and everything. So, in the in the few minutes we have left, the the impression that is kind of forming in my mind as we have this discussion is that some of us have trauma that we can remember and identify and deal with. And I feel like some of the traditional methods or predominant methods work quite well to address those things. Some of the trauma that you've been handed was in utero, pre-memory. It's it's very hardwired in your brain. And traditional therapies can't access what you don't know is, is there. I don't know if I'm putting the correct language around that, but I feel like you've had to seek out some different approaches because you you had to heal what was so deep and and you couldn't do the traditional CBT around something that is hardwired. A fair way of explaining it, or would you put different language around that? Well, no. I mean, there there are some wonderful therapies for trauma. There's EMDR. There is uh, somatic therapies that are great for the somatic um, psychotherapy. There, uh, there are tools out there for, you know, working that trauma, getting it out of the tissues and, and you know, bringing it up to the surface. And um, I think there's tapping, uh, emotional freedom technique. I mean, uh, there's yoga, um, you know, but I understand what you're saying. I think um, I personally don't think that just talking about the trauma is going to um, release it from the tissues. And um, I never really acknowledged my relinquishment trauma until about maybe two months ago. I've been doing the work and doing the work and I've been going deeper and deeper and deeper, you know. And so I guess I was just brought, the universe brought me to this place where it's like, okay, Barry, it's now time to work on this. You know, roll your sleeves up and let's do the work. Because I think this this is what's been just just, you know, holding me back for so long. And, 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 um, but I understand exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Deep, deep cellular trauma. Um, but I had to do something, you know, drastic, you know, my life is so much different now. And I, I, like I said, I'm shining and I'm continuing this journey. You know, I'm, I'm taking full, um, accountability for my emotions. I'm releasing my unresolved childhood emotions. I'm setting and holding boundaries. I'm, observing more rather than reacting. I'm keeping one small promise to myself daily. You know, I'm questioning my ego stories. I'm, you know, learning to breathe. I'm, you know, looking at triggers are my teachers. So I'm really looking at my, um, at everything as a teacher these days and, and integrating my fragmented self and, you know, becoming whole again. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, I, I think it, it goes to the fact that sometimes we can't rush our healing. A long ago, someone said to me, I wish you a slow and enlightened recovery. And I thought that was just so beautiful because I had been in a big hurry to get things fixed and move on. And the idea to just enjoy the removal of each layer and explore what's under every rock and enjoy the fact that I probably for the rest of my life will be undoing the hairball that is <laughs> that is, yeah. is became became something of interest and wonder and not to be feared or or rushed and it sounds like you're in a really good place yeah jean i really i really appreciate you um 
you know, helping me with this interview because, um, yeah, like the little tiny traumatic brain injury, sometimes I, I just, I just can't remember what I'm saying. So, but I, I really appreciate you, you know, helping me being able to express myself and articulate some of the things that I needed to articulate. Um, but I, I guess the message behind everything is that there is hope. There is hope and there is healing and it's available and that we are all, everyone is a self healer. Everyone is, you know, capable of um, healing themselves. It's a great thing. It's a great thing. There's, we are just a community of empowered people, you know, with the, the podcast, with what you do, Jean, with your unpickled blog. I love reading your blog and, and your podcast and, and all the other people that are working in the recovery community with um, their Facebook pages, their Instagram pages, and, you know, everything, and, and these um, self-healing circles on Zoom during the quarantine. I mean, it's incredible the community that, you know, we have, I just am so grateful. And I just, I really feel humbled by, by all of this. And just to think that I didn't know any of this existed up until about 2017, 2018, you know, all these online recovery communities, because I was just relying on one and it wasn't really kind of helping me with the trauma. I just really appreciate you and everything that you do and, and all the time that you put into all of this. And, you know, and and the book you wrote for Christmas, the book you wrote for the holidays, it was the best book, the (laughs) Unpickled Guide to the, I loved it. I loved it. And I have it right here on my bookshelf. So I think everybody should have it on their bookshelf. ah, I just love watching you create too, Jean. I do. I I see you creating and it just makes me so happy because I feel like when, when, for me, when the trauma leaves my body, that's the time that I feel my creative juice is really kicking in. And so when I see somebody creating and it doesn't have, you know, writing, drawing, singing, you know, doodling, it's, it's just, it's so joyful because I see like, you know, the trauma leaving and, and the recovery you know, coming in and, and the love coming in. And it just makes me so happy. Damn it. <laughs> Oops, I said a curse word. <laughs> I feel like we couldn't pick a better note to wrap up our discussion today. Thank you so much. It is just a joy. It's a joy to walk this road with you and to spend time with you today. Thank you, Barry. Okay. Thanks, Jean. And that's it for the bubble hour this week. Thank you for listening. And if you would like to send a message to Barry, email it to me, thebubblehour at gmail.com, and I'll make sure that Barry gets your message. Everyone, please do take good care. These are hard times. These are historically difficult times. We may never be the same after this, but we can control what we do through it. If you're struggling, reach out. The amount of resources right now are unbelievable. Those of us who are active in the online recovery space have the time and the capacity to help, to help direct you to resources, to help get you reinforced, get you started, or just listen if you just need someone to listen. So... That's all for this week, everyone. Thank you for being here. Take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. 
Just want to 